The flags are up in honor of Veterans Day, but also now in light of what's happened in Paris, um, they're in up representing that country's colors. And we have uh, a lot of solidarity with them, our oldest ally. And not just um, in Paris, but also in places like Beirut and Baghdad, places that don't get... Uh, Noticed on the radar, if you will, you know, when when there's a bombing in those places, it's just another bombing. Uh, But what happened in Paris happens on a regular basis throughout the Middle East. We just don't see it in the news. I, like all of you, uh, watched um, what happened on Friday with, uh, with great horror and with sadness um, I learned uh, just the other day that a Cal State University Long Beach student was in the concert hall uh, and was killed that same fateful day in Paris. So we have a local Southern California girl that was there, 23 years of age. Our nation and the world is suffering as we try to make sense of what is happening in our world. But I think one thing is very, very clear. The course that we're on is not a good course. The path that our world is on is not a good path. And we know we need to do something about it. The title of my message today is Reverse Course. Reverse Course. Our nation, the world, we all know something's terribly wrong right now. We all know it. We instinctively feel it. And we all know that something needs to change. We need to turn around, and and who knows where we go from here, but we need to turn around and go in a different direction because the direction we've been headed has been fatefully flawed. And you've got all these answers that are uh, arriving on the scene, right? What to do about it. You have some that are saying, you know, just isolate yourselves from all of the world. Be your own little island and, and don't worry about what's happening way over there. You have others that are saying, uh, deny it's happening. It's not happening. We're not at war with, with these people. That's just a facade. We've got others who are saying, uh, you know, we should go back over to the Middle East and that we should involve ourselves, enmesh ourselves again and push for American power to be restored in these regions of the world. For without a strong America, they reason, the world goes to pot. I have no idea what the right answer is, but I do know we need to reverse course. In the book of Esther, chapter 8, we find the nation of Persia reversing course. They were headed down one path, the path that Haman had asked them to follow. And that was the path in which Haman, who was the evil prime minister of King Xerxes, that was the path that led Persia 12 months away to be executing the Jews on the 13th day of Adar, the last day of the month. That was the path that he wanted to take his country on. He wanted to take them down a path where a decree was written, a law was passed, that on that fateful day, every Jew in the kingdom would be executed. That was Haman's path. But in chapter 7, we learned last week, that plot, that path got stopped 
in its tracks. And here we are in chapter 8, turning around now and asking the question, which way is Persia going to go? What is Persia going to do to right this wrong? What is Persia going to do? What's King Xerxes going to do to ensure that the path that they were on with Haman gets not, not just stopped like it was in chapter 7, but that it gets put on a new path, a better path, a path of redemption? Stand with me as we read from Esther chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, as we consider this next phase in our story in Esther. Esther chapter 8, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter today, but I wanted to focus first on verses 1 through 10, which we'll read together now. Esther 8, 1 through 10. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for uh, for Esther had told how he was related to her. And so the king, King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Verse 3, now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract, to reverse the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. So the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther and Esther arose and stood before the king and said, if it pleases the king and if I found favor in his sight and if, and, and the, if the thing seems right to the king and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves, Esther Mordecai, you yourselves, write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote, verse 10, in the name of King Ahasuerus, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring, and he sent the letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds. You may be seated. Verse 1 again. Verse 1 and 2. On that day, that is to say the same day, the same day that Esther revealed Haman's plot on the same day that Esther revealed what Haman was going to do and the king had Haman executed for his crime. On that same day, King Ahasuerus gave Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and then Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told how he was related to her 
And the king took off the signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Number of things happening here. First thing that happens, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, we know him by Xerxes in Greek. Xerxes gives Esther Haman's estate, his house, all of his property, all of his possessions. He gives them to Esther. Secondly, Esther reveals her relationship to Mordecai. She tells the king, finally, after all this time, she finally tells the king that she and Mordecai, her uncle, adopted father, if you will, that they are related, that they are family. And as a result, Xerxes, wanting to honor and please his wife, honors the work of Mordecai, raises him up even further than he raised him up back in chapter 6 of this story, when he paraded him around on horseback. He raises him up, he gives him the signet ring that Haman once had, and Esther also honors Mordecai by, let, by giving him appointment over Haman's estate, Remind, reminding us of the words of Solomon when he said that the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous, Proverbs thirteen twenty two, The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. But one thing, one thing remained undone. Haman's decree. Haman's decree to kill every single Jew on the 13th of Adar in the future, months that lie ahead. But that decree still remained in place. Why? Because in that ancient civilization, the decree of the Medes and the Persians, the law of the ancient Persian king was irrevocable. It could not be revoked. It could not be changed. Esther did not know what to do about it. And so we come to verse 3 of chapter 8. And now Esther spoke again to the king. She fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract, to reverse the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, if it pleases the king, if I found favor in his sight, continuing on, and if the thing seems right to the king, if I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? The words fall down right there, fell down. It means she literally, she collapsed in front of the king. She collapsed with emotion. And this on the same day and during the same time frame that Esther has, you know, revealed Haman. He's been executed. Her enemy has been executed as a result of what he had done. Mordecai, her uncle, adopted father, had been lifted up. And yet, Esther, still sensing incredible emotion, knowing full well that the, the edict or the decree of an ancient Persian king is irrevocable. It can't be revoked, and yet she's using revocation language. She's, she's falling down on her, on her knees and saying, please, king, there must be a way to revoke this. There must be a way 
to make this right. I cannot bear it if Haman's decree, which is settled law, goes into effect. Verse 4, the king holds out the golden scepter toward Esther. Some, might, some scholars might speculate that this was another instance of Esther risking her life before the king. We remember that uh, all the way back in uh, was it chapter 4 or 5 where Esther goes before the king and she's worried about it. She's anxious about it. Chapter 5, she goes before him and he, and he lowers the scepter indicating that, that she can live and, and she can come before the king. Had he not done that, she would have been murdered on the spot. Some indicate that this might be another instance in which that's probably taking place. I don't think so. Other scholars suggest this is probably more just a gesture of encouragement by the king. Probably more a gesture of of favor, which he was already showing her. She was already in his presence. And so the lowering of the scepter this time was probably just an indication that, that he's with her that he's alongside her, that he has her best interests at heart. Look at her strategy. She employs the same strategy she does in chapter 5. She employs the same strategy she does in chapter 7. She shows great deference to the king. If it pleases the king, if I have favor in your sight, if it seems right to the king, if I'm pleasing in your eyes, then revoke what Haman has done. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. How could I endure to watch my people suffer? Verse 7 and 8. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. Esther, Mordecai, you yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. Oh, please, king, please, I beg you, Let something be done that can reverse course, that can take us away from what Haman was doing and turn us back around to a better path. King, there must be something we can do. And he says, okay, there is. And you can write it. Write a decree concerning your people, the Jews. Write it just as you please. Put it in my name. Seal it with my ring. Whatever is written in my name and sealed with my ring, no one can revoke. The king gives Esther and Mordecai a way out. He knows, and she knows, and Mordecai knows, that the king cannot delete the edict that was written in Haman's name and in the king's name. The king knows he cannot delete that edict. And so instead, he proposes a new solution. He says, write a new one. Write a new one. And write one in such a way that directly addresses, that directly confronts the contents of that other edict. Esther Mordecai, 
Write it as you see fit. You are in charge now. You get to write the law. You get to write the law. <laughs> we, we decry a lot of things. I decry a lot of things. <clears throat> I, uh, I hear, you know, what's going on in the Middle East, what's happening with the refugees, what's happening with immigration, what's happening in our economy, what's happening in our world, and we decry things, right? We decry, oh, I can't believe it, I can't believe this is happening, I can't believe that's happening. What if, what if you were given the reins? And it was said to you, okay, you write it. You write the law. You tell me what to do about the Middle East. You tell me what to do about the refugee problem where millions upon millions of people are fleeing their country in Syria, in Iraq, in Libya, and throughout North Africa. You write it. You determine what, what's going to happen. It's on you now. It's one thing to decry and to bemoan and to cast blame. It's another thing to come up with a solution. And to do it in such a way. To do it in such a way that will not incur the wrath of the people. But instead would inspire the hope of the people. And the trust of the people. Xerxes says, it's your turn, Esther. It's your turn, Mordecai. Haman had this power, and he used it in certain ways that led to his demise. Now it's your turn to make the decision. What will you do? Verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote, Mordecai did, in the name of King Ahasuerus, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horseback riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. The scribes are summoned. They're brought in. They bring in the writers of the law just as they brought them in for Haman. The scribes are summoned and Mordecai and Esther are standing there and it's time for a new law to be written. I highlighted uh, on the previous uh, slide, jump back one for me. On the previous slide, I highlighted the dates. In the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. That might seem very insignificant to you. But if, you, if we were to jump back to Esther chapter 3, we would read uh, something unique about Haman's decree. Something very unique in Esther chapter 3. In fact, if you have your Bible open, it's not on the screen, turn to Esther chapter 3 and look at verse 12. Esther chapter 3. Look at verse 12 for just a moment. It says in Esther 3 verse 12, Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. 
So let me get this straight. On the 13th day of the first month, the month of Nisan, Haman wrote his law. He dictated it to the scribes on the 13th day of the first month. Fast forward to the 23rd day of the third month of Sivan, and now Mordecai is dictating to the scribes what law is to be written. The time span between those two dates, 70 days. 70 days. What else does that number symbolize in Scripture? Well, 70 is a number of completion in the Word of God. In Jeremiah 29, verse 10, 70 years represented the number of years that Israel would be enslaved in Babylon and after that Persia before they would be released. Jeremiah 29.10, you will be enslaved 70 years. In Daniel 9.24, the term 70 weeks or 77s represents the time span between the decree to rebuild the temple until the final return of Messiah Jesus. In Daniel 9.24, 70 represented a number of completion. 70 years in in Jeremiah 29, 70 weeks in Daniel 9, 70 days in Esther chapter 8. God is ever reminding his people that he is not done. That he will bring an end to their suffering and to their pain. That he will complete the work that he has put into motion precisely 70 days after learning of their demise. God through the hands of Esther and Mordecai was telling his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No power of hell will overcome you. I will preserve your life. I will give you hope and a future. Now, now we come to the law that Mordecai writes. 70 days later, for Mordecai, probably fully aware of that number in his mind as he begins to pen the response, the responsive law to the edict of Haman. Take a look at verse 11 and 12. We we read a summary. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and to protect their lives to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the last month, which is the month of Adar. Verses 11 and 12 represent the summary of the law that Mordecai wrote In the name of the king. And what's that summary? Well, we see it there in green. To destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the forces of any person, any person, or any province. It even goes on to say both little children and women within those provinces. And to do it all. To plund- excuse me, also to plunder their possessions and to do it all on that same day, the 13th of Adar, that Haman had decreed that the Jewish people would be slaughtered. 
Now, I don't know about you, but a first reading and a casual reading of Mordecai's new law <laughs> looks pretty tough, doesn't it? It looks pretty dark. It looks um, incredibly vengeful, doesn't it? He's been, he's been put in charge, right? No more decrying and bemoaning. Oh, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe that is happening. No, no, the king said it's your turn. You write the law. And you incur, by the way, the response of the people when you write that law and when you set those orders in motion. It's your turn, Mordecai. Go for it. And here's what Mordecai writes at first glance. It sounds like deep, dark revenge. At the onset of the French Revolution, little uh, representation here, King Louis the 16th of France, at the beginning of the French Revolution, he was executed by his detractors on January 21st, 1793. A few months later in July of that same year, a man named Robespierre set up the Committee of Public Safety. The Committee of Public Safety. You and I know this committee as the Reign of Terror. For Robespierre... And the newly victorious leaders of France spent the next year systematically executing their political and civilian enemies via the guillotine. In one year, in one year, from July of 1793 to the next year, Robespierre and his men had executed over 50,000 Frenchmen. Deep, dark revenge. History is filled with stories of brand new political leaders who seek revenge against the ones previously in power. They harass, they prosecute, they imprison, they sometimes outright execute the old guard, as it were, in a demonstration of their newfound power. And so I wonder, I wonder, is what Robespierre did in 1793, what, was that what Mordecai was doing in Esther chapter 8? Was Mordecai simply writing a law in such a way as the new political power that would stick it to all those who had previously sided with Haman? Is Mordecai just taking deep, dark Revenge. Look again at verse 11. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Is Mordecai simply a precursor to men like Robespierre? No. To be sure, the summary statement of Mordecai, of his decree, sounds pretty awful. But it should also sound very familiar. Very familiar. Once again, Esther chapter 3. This time beginning in verse 13, not on the screen. Esther chapter 3. 
beginning in verse 13. This was Haman's decree. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. You didn't even need to turn to Esther 3.13. It's all up there in Esther 8, verse 11. Do you see the striking parallels between Haman's decree and Mordecai's new law? The reason Mordecai pens the law in the way that he does is to specifically address piece by piece every element of Haman's evil decree. So it is not surprising at all to see parallels between Haman's decree and between Mordecai's new law. They are nearly identical in content and in scope. But there's one exception. And it's a big one. Did you see it? Haman's decree in Esther 3.13 contained no conditions. Kill and plunder every Jew no matter what. Mordecai's decree contained one very important condition. Kill and plunder every person in province that intends to attack you. Take a look again at verse 11. He begins it, but he begins the summary statement, the author of Esther does, by a mention of three words there, to protect their lives. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together, to assemble, and protect their lives, protect themselves. How would they do it? To destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions on one day, the last day, or the 13th day of the last month. The words there, uh, the words there, I should have underlined them, the words would assault, right? Of any people or province that would assault them. In Hebrew, hasarim, it can mean to besiege someone. It can mean as, simp- so as, as strongly as to besiege or to attack. And also, conversely, as softly as that have intent to do harm or to show hostility toward or to treat as a foe. The Greek translation of the Hebrew emphasizes this latter part. It's the Greek word uh, bulomai. It means to want something or to desire something or to intend something, to plan something. When the, when the summary statement is written here that the Jews are to attack those who would assault them, it is to say that they are to wait. They are to wait in protection of their lives, assembled together, and see if someone comes and see if a province comes and see if there is intent to harm by anyone on that day. If they incur an attack, they're to respond. How? To destroy them, to annihilate them, to kill them. Even the women and children who come up against them, they're to, they're to destroy them. And to plunder their possessions, Mordecai gives them that option. Though we'll learn later on that they don't choose that option. If they attack you, 
defend yourself. If they intend to attack you and you see them mounting their plans and intention and you see them coming, if you will, prepare yourselves. This is to be your plan of action. Haman's decree, Haman's decree was precarious and filled with risk. Mordecai's law, preventative, filled with safeguards. Haman's decree incites violence without condition. Mordecai's law promotes self-defense. Haman's decree demands absolute death of the Jews. Mordecai's law offers peace to those who live in peace. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and to protect their lives from those who would assault them. Two decrees written 2,500 years ago, and yet how akin they are to the situation in the Middle East today. Just last year, uh, just last year, I heard these beautiful, simple, and true words from a man I highly respect. I wanted to share them with you. The first thing he said, if tomorrow Israel laid down its arms and announced, we will fight no more, what would happen? Next one. And if the Arab countries around Israel laid down their arms and announced, we will fight no more, what would happen? Next slide. In the first case, there would be an immediate destruction of the state of Israel and mass murder of its Jewish population. Finally, in the second case, there would be peace the next day. The difference between Haman and Mordecai's laws and intentions are as stark 2,500 years ago as they are today in the Middle East. For those with eyes to see it, this does not mean, by the way, that Israel is exempt (laughs) from everything that it does. It's surely not. Israel needs to conduct itself carefully, particularly in that part of the world. They need to conduct themselves in fairness and in justice, equity toward all. But what is clear in our world today is that the Mordecais of the world and the Hamans of the world, well, what's clear is that they're still here today. The Hamans of the world the Ayatollah of Iran, the leader of uh, the Palestinian people, the leaders of Hamas and Hezbollah, if Israel were to put down their arms today, you would see mass slaughter of the Jews. Conversely, if all of the Arab nations laid down their arms, Israel, at least from my vantage point as I watched this world unfold, that there would be peace. There would be no harm done. Twenty five hundred years ago, same things happening today. It's telling. Verse thirteen. 
A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal appearance, apparel excuse me, of blue and white and a great crown of gold and garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Did you see the, the, the reaction of the people? When Haman made his decree, if you jump back to Esther chapter 3 at the end of it, when Haman made his decree, it said the city of Shushan was perplexed. When Haman made his decree, it said that Mordecai and the Jews, that there was great mourning, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, many laying in sackcloth and ashes. But when horsemen carried forward Mordecai's law, when they rode to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Persia with Mordecai's decree, the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad, verse 15. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. In every province and city where the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Solomon said in Proverbs 29.2, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. The tide has completely turned in the city of Shushan and all of ancient Persia. The Jews, destined by law to execution, we're now 70 days later destined for hope, life, and peace. The reversal came so swiftly and so dramatic that only divine intervention could explain it. Which explains why at the end of verse 17, it is said, then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Of course it did. Of course it did. Just like Haman's wife had warned him, don't mess with these people. I've heard of their history. They are unlike anyone ever on earth. The people of Persia saw what had transpired and they could not help but recognize that God was with the Jewish people. Many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Whether that conversion was legitimate or not, we don't know. That'd be really neat, though, to get to heaven one day and to meet some of these Persians who were converted to the God of Israel because of what happened on this day 2,500 years ago. Surely some of them will be there. What a story they will tell. The world would call it, if you can't beat them, join them. I call it, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. He is for us. 
He is for his people, Israel. He is for his church. He is for any man, woman, or child who would call upon him in faith. He is a good and a decent and a true God. He executes justice in this world. This world is fraught. Fraught with havoc and chaos. Paris, Beirut, Baghdad, Iran, North Korea, the list goes on. Our own nation, look what's happened. We need a moment like this one. We need someone to come and to, uh, to write the law. We need a Mordecai who will come and give an order, a set of orders that are righteous and good for protection of life. For a hope and a future. In Esther 9, Mordecai got to write that law. He got to reverse course. And he got to carve out that path. That was Esther 9. In Revelation 19, Jesus will begin to carve out a new path. When he defeats the enemies of God. And then in the very next chapter, sets up his millennial kingdom. By faith in Christ, you can be a part of that new kingdom. You can receive the benefits of those great new laws. Laws that are written not by the hand of a man, but by the hand of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know we have to reverse course. We know we do. The whole world knows it. Sadly, we have leaders in high places that have no idea which way to go. In large part, Lord, because they are not looking to you for truth and for answers. We pray, God, that you would raise up men and women like Esther and like Mordecai, who, when they were given a chance to have power, did not spitefully and vengefully take aggression against their enemies. But instead, Lord, wrote law that promoted life and peace and preservation if others would have it. Help our land, Lord. Help our world to heal. We pray for leaders in our future that would do right in this world. And ultimately, God, We rest in the sure knowledge that your son Jesus will come on the last day to write the last law, a law in our hearts in his everlasting kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.